Father, we are deeply blessed each and every Sunday to be able to be in the house of God, to recognize that you have given to us the privilege of worshiping you together. Whether we are under the uh, sound of the word as we study it, whether we're singing, uh, whether we're giving, whatever it might be, Father, we trust that all of this is our worship of you because we know that you are the only worthy one. And as we study even the passages of scripture that we'll look at today, we're again reminded of the fact that you alone are holy and you are the one that is worthy of all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And Father, I pray that that will be the, the response of our hearts as we study your word today. I thank you for each one in this room and pray for your specific blessing upon each individual. Many of us are away uh, today, traveling, on vacation. Pray you'll be with each one and uh, bring each one safely back to us in the days ahead. And Father, we ask that uh, as your word is uh, being proclaimed in the service at this hour and in the other Sunday school classes, that uh, you will truly uh, exalt your, yourself in the eyes and the hearts of each person. In Christ's name, amen. As we've been looking at the life of Moses, we have seen where Moses now has uh, been on the mountain and God has given to Moses uh, the vision of the worship as it is to be in the years ahead for Israel. You have to think about the fact that uh, the worship of God had not been quite as specific up to this moment. There was no specific place where they, the people were to meet God. Uh, you remember that uh, Abraham built an altar here and he built another altar there. He built an altar at Beersheba. Isaac built altars in several places and Jacob built altars and they worshiped God there and, and there, that's, that's fine because as we understand God today, we can worship him anywhere we choose. We can worship him in our house, in the church, on the top of a hill, uh, you know, in the middle of a lake, where even at work, we can worship God. But God now has revealed to Israel through Moses that he wants to focal, put, create a focal point for the worship. Not that God isn't still everywhere and not that the people can't still worship God in their hearts wherever they may be. But as we look at chapters 26 and 27 of the book of Exodus, we're going to see that God uh, established a focal point for his worship. We've looked at some of the furnishings that were to go into the tabernacle. We've looked at the Ark of the Covenant. We've looked at the table of the showbread. We've looked at the menorah, the lampstand. We will later on, look at the golden altar of incense and uh, before that we'll, we'll look at the, the great bronze altar that was placed outside the tabernacle. But for whatever reason God uh, put the description here of the tabernacle itself before some of these other features or word are described. Very very few of us are comfortable thinking in the abstract that is in sort of an isolated mental realm, you know, where we're off thinking and, and we're totally unattached to reality. Because that's true, God chose to meet with his people, not in the abstract, 
but in the physical real world that, that we're familiar with. Human life, as we well know, is circumscribed by time and space and matter. Just, just think where we'd be if, <laughs> if, if we lost track of time and, and we lost contact with matter. I suppose that's what happens when they put people in these uh, tanks where they float around in, in body temperature fluid and, and you, you can't sense your surroundings and, and it's totally black and there's no noise. I can imagine what that must be like. It sounds pretty bad to me, but that's, we don't live that way. We're constantly in contact with, with the world around us through sight, through sound, through touch, whatever it may be. And, and God understanding that, of course, has thus arranged a time and a place to meet with his people. The time that God would meet with his people was of his own choosing, and the place was to be the Mishkan, that is, the tabernacle, which is also called in the scripture the tent of meeting. But as tent of meeting, it doesn't mean like we say we're going to go to the meeting house, because when we say we're going to the meeting house, that's where we go to meet each other. Uh, the tent of meeting was where people went to meet God, not to meet each other. Because in the tabernacle, you did not go into the tabernacle and sit down in rows and, and you know, listen to the priest preach a sermon. Only the priests went into the tabernacle. The people were outside in the courtyard. They never entered the tabernacle at all. It was just the priests who went in there. And, of course, in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, only one priest, the high priest, and he only went one time a year uh, during the year. So it was different from the way we think of a meeting house uh, today, but it was nevertheless the tent of meeting where God met his people. The, the word mishkan, which is the word translated as tabernacle here, is derived from the Hebrew word shakan, which means to dwell. And the usage is based on the concept that God dwells in the midst of his people. And this concept of dwelling uh, must be understood not in the sense that God lived in the tabernacle because God didn't live in the tabernacle but that God chose to put his name there the name of God was attached attached to this tabernacle and it was there that he chose to reveal himself in speaking from the, the, the top of the mercy seat from that space above the mercy seat there and of course when the tabernacle is first dedicated and we'll notice that when we get to that passage uh, the whole tabernacle turns into a glowing fire and smoke as, as God's presence is manifested there in the tabernacle. But that's not how it would be uh, in an ongoing situation. It would be that for that moment of dedication, and after that, uh, the tabernacle would look like the tabernacle looked before it was dedicated, except, of course, God would meet his people through the priesthood there at that place. The understanding of the concept of God tabernacling amongst his people is very, very important in helping us to understand something very fundamental about God. The Bible clearly reveals two characteristics of God that I want to highlight in the next few minutes. And we've talked about these in other venues. Uh, the first is the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. That is that he is outside of the limits of normal human experience. You know, the old Russian astronaut, we've heard this so many times, the old Russian astronaut who went up there and floated around said, well, I know there's no God because I was out there in space and I didn't see him. Well, <laughs> no concept of the transcendence of God, right? I mean, God is not visible. 
to human eyes unless God chooses to make himself visible. But we're not to that point yet. We're just talking about his transcendence at this point. He is beyond the material universe. Let me just uh, read a passage to you from Acts chapter 7. As you know, that chapter is the famous defense that Stephen made in one of the great sermons of the, of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 47, we read this. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is, my foot, is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? I mean, God is the creator of it all. So how is God going to reside in a place built by human hand? The problem is, of course, if God were only transcendent, we could never know him because there would be no point of contact between us and the transcendent God. The God who fills the universe, who is above and beyond all things, uh, who is not limited by time, who is not limited by, uh, by space, I mean, these are concepts you, can, you and I can't even really deal with. Have you ever tried to sit down and think of infinity? That's, that's quite a conundrum. How, how do you think of infinity? How do you think of limitlessness? We're all you know, subject to limits in all types. And the older you get, the more limited you are, or I am too. You know, you, you watch the Olympics and you see the guy jump over the high jump bar at seven foot whatever it is, you know, I think, yeah, right. I have hard enough time getting two feet off the ground at the same time. You know, or, or long jumping almost 30 feet or whatever the record is now. It just seems incredible. But even that is limited. It's, it's like the four-minute mile. It used to be believed that mile never could be run in less than four minutes, and now they've got it down to, I don't know, three minutes and 40-some-odd seconds or whatever it is. But you know that there is a limit. There's got to be some expenditure of time between the starting gun and crossing that finish line. It could never be gotten down to zero. <laughs> Not as far as humans running, you know, on the ground is concerned. There is a point at which there should be a time that never could be surpassed by human ability. I guess we haven't reached it yet. But, but we all have limits. But God is unlimited. And what really blows our minds, I think, is trying to think of timelessness. Because hardly anything we can think of is separated from time. I mean, this class is already 10 or 15 minutes old. I mean, that's already history already. And you and I are already 10 to 15 minutes closer to the end of, of our existence here on this earth. And to think of God is outside that. There never was a time when God was not. Well, when you think about that, there never was a time when God was not. You know, I mean, how do we even consider it outside of that kind of, of framework? And yet that's, that's where God is. And confined as we are to space, time, and matter, we could never penetrate into the eternal spiritual realm where God is in his transcendence unless he chose to break that barrier himself. There are people who think they can reach the spiritual realm. 
they think that by sitting down and going into a trance, you know, taking part in transcendental meditation, that somehow they can lift out of the body and they can go off into the spiritual realm and they can encounter beings in the spiritual realm or they can channel beings or, or whatever. That's what they think. But of course, that's not where they are. They are not in the eternal spiritual realm where God is. They are in a world of deception and illusion. They're in a world where there are spirit beings, all right, but it's not God, and it's not God's eternity. It's a, it's a place into which beings have moved who put themselves on as if they were angels of God, who pose as Christ himself, who even pose as deceased persons. And they sit there and have their little seances, you know, and they think they're talking with the dead. What they're talking with is, is demonic beings who are impersonating, whatever. You know, we keep hearing about these people who have out-of-body experiences, and they, they float off, and they see all oh, the bright colors, and they, see this, they feel this warmth, and they see this glowing being that they're going to, and then some doctor, totally uh, against their desires, brings them back to life, you know, in reality. And, and these people have no profession of any knowledge of God or Christ. Well, who is that being out there? I mean, if it wasn't a drug-induced delusion, which it might have been, what was it? Well, it certainly was the angel of light, which the scripture says is Satan himself who poses as an angel of light to appear as if he is God himself, to suck people into believing it doesn't really matter whether you trust in Jesus Christ because God is going to make it all okay in the end anyway. Believe in Buddha if you like. As long as, you do, you're, as, long as you're a good Buddhist, you'll get there. If you're a good Islamic person, you'll get there. The world of deception, a world of illusion. And drugs will do the same thing. Some of you may have read the book that I read years ago called Death of a Guru, in which a, a fellow whose father was actually a Hindu guru, and who actually, I think it was, for the last eight years of his life, just sat in one spot and, and was in a trance for eight years. And he, he talks about his Hindu experience and coming to Christ, and, and he makes it very clear that what drugs do, transcendental meditation does. What you can do in transcendental meditation, you can do with drugs. It's all the same, and it leads you to the same place, this world of illusion, this world of deception, which is full of demonic spirits, and has no contact or any relationship with God himself. They're not penetrating into the world of God. They're penetrating into the supposed world of ascended masters. We can kind of, in your spirit, go up there and, and talk to Buddha or, or Muhammad or whoever you want to have as your ascended master, and he's going to guide you through the rest of your life. You know, I mean, it's, people believe that, and uh, they're guided all right, but it has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the almighty, holy, and righteous God who doesn't function that way. He tells us exactly in here how he functions. But, of course, the problem we have as a human race is that we know better. The arrogance of the human race, which, is got us, which got us into trouble in the first place, is that same arrogance which keeps us in trouble today. In reality, what we can know about God is the result only of his eminence. His eminence. God has chosen to reveal himself by entering the physical world of our experience. It is God's choice to do that. You and I cannot get up there and touch him. It's only because he, can, he, will, he chose to come down and touch us that there's any contact between us and God whatsoever. Now, we have read, and we won't turn to it again, we've read in the first chapter of Romans several times, 
uh, the passage which talks about the fact that we can experience God in the sense that we can see him in the created order. We watch a glorious sunset. We see the great rainbow in the sky. We see these majestic mountains and great waterfalls and the expanse of the ocean. And in it all, we can experience something of God in the sense that he is the creator of it. So we can know something about God, and that is that he's a creator of, of great order and, and of beauty. But we cannot know him personally. We cannot know his character from that. We, we cannot know his desires, his will for us from that. The only way we can know those things is when he crosses the boundary. When, when he breaks through from his transcendence and becomes an eminent God coming down here and then reveals himself to us and tells us what his character is and tells us what he wants us to do. That's the only way we can know him. Now some consider that to be a paradox. How can God be transcendent and unknowable and also eminent and knowable? Our philosophy really struggles with some of these things. And that's why it's really tough to be a, a philosopher who doesn't know the living God. Because you struggle with all these philosophies and I mean, you know, it's, it's enough to make your mind warped if it wasn't already. And you just, you just face conundrum after conundrum. How can this be and this be at the same time? And we, we struggle with this somewhat within the, within the church, in, in the theological realm. You know, we, we, we struggle with how God can be absolutely supreme and, and the Calvinistic concept of God. And, and then on the other side, how we have a degree of free will and, uh, you know, the Wesleyan uh, side. And some people think you can only be a Calvinist or a Wesleyan. Well, you can be both <laughs> because God is both. And, and we can't see it because our minds haven't got the ability to penetrate, but God in his almighty nature can be transcendent and imminent. You know, he, he can fill the universe and yet he can live in, in your little dinky heart or mine. Hard for us to really grasp how that can be. By nature, he is transcendent and we cannot reach him by our own effort. What does that mean? That means that all the religions of the world are meaningless. Because all the religions of the world are an effort to try to reach God by human effort. I mean, study Islam, if you will. Islam is an attempt by good works to be pleasing to a God who's pretty persnickety. And a God just soon zap you as look at you. Or you look at Buddhism or whatever you want to look at, it's all human effort to try to be pleasing to appease some god up there or, or a whole pantheon full of gods. It's all bunk because you cannot do that. You cannot reach the real god, the true god, by human effort. It's impossible. We live in a different realm. It's like a, a housefly trying to reach Venus. You just can't do it. There just is no way it can happen. Well, God himself, however, has chosen to lower himself in more ways than one. To cross from the infinite to the finite. To commune with you and with me. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, then either you're in neutral or your mind's already been blown. Let me read a few passages of Scripture that highlight this. I'd like to read uh, Psalm 113. I like Psalm 113 partly because it's fairly easy to, easily divisible. 
into two parts. The first five verses deal with the transcendent nature of God, and the last four verses deal with the eminence of God. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? That's his transcendence. And now, suddenly, we leap right into his eminence, his presence here, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children, praise the Lord. I mean, here we have the God who is enthroned above the heavens, who humbles himself to look into an individual life and to care about that barren woman who is almost an outcast in her society because she has not had a child, and to make her as a joyful mother of children. Where do you find that in the religions of the world? I mean, look and see. Where do you find that? You don't. God is transcended above all. And yet in his almighty ability, he can come down and, and care about an individual person. Just, just for the fun of it, uh, you know, conceive of yourself as God and conceive of microbes as people. Would you care about individual microbes by the millions crawling around on this planet? Probably not. But of course, microbes were not made in the image of God. You and I were. I'd like also to read a verse from Isaiah 57, which basically does the same thing, says the same thing. Oops, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And then suddenly the verse makes a, a huge turn and says, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I'm on a high and holy place, and yet I'm right down here in the heart of an individual who has bowed his heart in, uh, in humility before God. And then, of course, the very familiar passage, familiar to us all, I think, uh, from Philippians chapter 2, which really explains, I think, the, the ultimate expression of God's eminence. Emmanuel, God with us. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, we read, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who although he existed in the form of God, the, the Greek here means the very essence of God. It doesn't mean that he looked like God. It means that he was God himself did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Literally, the Greek is to be held on to. In other words, he let go of his equality to become a man, but he was equal to the Almighty. 
who although he existed, uh, no, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, again, becoming, in essence, actually human, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by become obedient, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are many who will try to tell us that what that means is, of course, that God took this man and, and made him a highly exalted man. And therefore, he, he is to be bowed to because he's highly exalted above other men. But the scripture makes it clear that you are to bow your knee and worship none but God only. None but God only. Not even an angel. Because remember, when they did bow to the angels, the angels said, stand up, stand up, don't bow to me, I'm only an angel. And there are those, as you may know, if you've had them come to your door, who are telling you that Jesus Christ is, in effect, nothing but an angel, a highly exalted angel, which is totally denied by Scripture all the way through. He must be worshipped as God only. So here is the ultimate means by which God, in his transcendent nature, would come down and humble himself to become a man even to the point of becoming a true man. Now, that's another one of the great struggles of theology. How could Jesus be all God and all man at the same time? And I'm not going to tell you how, because I can't explain it, and neither can any of the theologians. But God can do that. God can do the impossible. I mean, he says, you know, is it too hard? Is anything too hard for me? Well, obviously not. Nothing is too hard for the Almighty One. And just because we can't figure it out doesn't mean it's not true, Right? It was thus through the tabernacle that the transcendent God made his eminence most evident in the Old Testament era until at least the time of the temple and then in the temple. But this, this concept of this structure, uh, this is where God made his eminence most uh, understood by the vast majority of people. There were certain individuals, of course, who faced a theophany. And, and God appeared in angelic form and they talked directly to God. And, and obviously his eminence was very real to them there. But for the nation of Israel as a whole, they did not all see that, those theophanies. And, and so this was where they understood the reality of God being in their presence. So the glory which they had witnessed on the top of Mount Sinai, as God revealed himself in the thunder and the lightning and the flame and the smoke and all that was going on while he was speaking with Moses, that glory now was focused to be centered in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Now, where is that glory today? It should be right here. It should be right here in our midst. Now, not that suddenly, you know, there's going to be fire and smoke's going to start pouring out of this room. But God is here in our midst. We have to believe that by faith. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And if we're not gathered here in his name this morning, then I don't know what we're doing here because that's the reason for our presence here, I believe. That glory is to be witnessed in the church. Now, not in a building. People shouldn't drive up by out there in Loma Vista and look in there and see glowing walls and smoke pouring up. I mean, they'd call the fire department if they, you know, saw that. 
So it's not as a brilliant light or a great cloud, but how is the reality of God's presence to be revealed in his people's midst here today? It's to be revealed, first of all, by the unity of God's people. We are all one in the spirit of the living God. It's to be exhibited in the love we have one for the other. If that unity is missing, if that love is missing, then there is something of the reality of God missing in the midst of his people. And in addition to that, there's the power of God in his preached word. And there's the power of God in the prayer of God's people. This is where I think the glory is today in God's church. In the love of his people, the unity of his people, in the word as it's proclaimed, and in the prayers as they are prayed. And if you will, in the music as it is sung, but that music in singing is a prayer, I hope. This is where we see that glory of God that was in the tabernacle and in the temple. Let, let me read a passage from the uh, third chapter of Ephesians. This is actually a prayer that Paul prayed. Verse 14, Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in all generations forever and ever. Amen. Glory. Glory of God in the midst of his church. Love. Love keeps showing up through that passage, being rooted and grounded in faith, that we might grow up into all that God has for us. Well, let's look at uh, how this uh, tabernacle was to be put together. Uh, Exodus chapter 26. I'd like to read the first six verses to begin with. Exodus 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen, and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. The length of each curtain shall be 20 cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five shall be joined to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. And you shall make fifty loops in the one curtain, and you shall make fifty loops in the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and join the curtains to one another with clasps, that the tabernacle may be a unit. Now, when I was a young person, I first read that. I said, okay, <laughs> let's go to the next chapter, you know. You read about all these loops and clasps and sets and, and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, it just, it goes by. 
What, what we discover here, first of all, is that God is very explicit about the construction of his tabernacle. He didn't just say to Moses, okay, go down and tell the guys to build, a, build me a tabernacle, however they like. No. He said, this is how it's to be built. And not only how it was to be built, he, he told how big it was to be and what kinds of material were to be used and what color they were even to be. You know, God is very, very specific here about this place where he was going on, on the earth at that time, going to put his name and where he was going to meet with his people. He didn't want the Israeli architects just to come down and have some kind of an ad hoc meeting, you know, and say, well, I think it ought to be this way, I think it ought to be that way, come up with some kind of a committee decision, you know, on how this tabernacle is going to be, and they have to argue for the rest of creation over whether the thing should have had red material or blue material or, you know, whatever, it, the way we do as, uh, as humans. And, of course, then they would boast of their achievement. And they say, oh, is this not the great tabernacle which I designed? I'm the architect of that, you know. I told you that when we were in uh, Barcelona, there's a, there's a huge cathedral that's in, still under construction. It's been under construction for over 100 years now. And they've got the towers up, the facades in the front and the rear. They don't have the roof on it yet or any of the interior done. Uh, it's called the, uh, the Cathedral of Sagrada Familia, the Sacred Family. And, uh, of course, it is looked at today as a monument to the glory of its architect. People go there not because they're going to say, oh, isn't God great? They go there and say, isn't Gaudi great who designed this thing? That's what God didn't want. <laughs> he didn't want some architect, uh, Goldstein or whatever his name is, saying, I designed this structure over here, you know, and aren't you happy that I was such a wonderful architect? No, God designed the tabernacle. Some commentators point out the fact that there are those who doubt that the tabernacle really was like it's described here because they said, first of all, how would they ever know how to weave all this material? Where would they get the material to weave? Where would they get the gold, the silver, the bronze? How in the world would they know how to shape it into any of this kind of form? I mean, these are just a bunch of slaves who escaped out of Egypt. How can they do all this stuff? Well, of course, the answer is three-letter word, God. God has the ability to teach us what we need to learn. But it's pagans who build these great temples in honor of their God. And the bigger the temple, obviously, uh, the greater they can brag about their God. They want to appease their God. Oh, hoogee-boogee, aren't you glad for this great structure we have built here for you? God didn't want anything like that. God's actions here are an example of the fact that we as believers are totally dependent upon God's grace and mercy in every aspect of our lives. There's no area of our lives where we are not dependent upon Him. There's nothing that you or I can do in our own strength that accomplishes one slight little bit of God's purpose. I don't care how talented you are or I am. We might be able to sing like Mario Lanza, for those of you who are old enough to remember Mario Alonza, or, or, you know, to, to be an architect of some great ability. I mean, God doesn't care about any of that because you can't sing well enough to please Him and you can't build well enough to please Him unless He is in you in your voice and He is in you in your building Unless it's done to his glory and in his power, it's a, it's a waste of time. 
it doesn't accomplish anything. Salvation is probably the finest example of this. It is a gift of God, and there's not a thing you or I can do to get it. We cannot be good enough to make God happy with us. Today, O oh Lord, I'm going to go out. I'm only going to say nice things to people. I'm going to be sweet all day long. I'm going to not kick the dog. <laughs> I, I'm going to uh, you know, be kind to that grouchy neighbor across the street. I, I just, this is what I'm going to do for you because I want you to be pleased with me. I want you to take me into your heaven because I'm going to do all these good things. You might as well not bother if that's your motivation. Not that those aren't good things to do, provided they come out of a heart that has already been transformed by the living God. We all know the passage, but I think it, it behooves us to read it again because it seems to me to be one of the most misunderstood passages of the entire Bible. Even though it's so plain and so straightforward, Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know how many times you've read it or how many times I've read it or how many times I've heard it quoted, but it seems to me as if the church can't hear it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is totally the gift of God, not as the result of works of any kind, way, shape, or form, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared forehand that we should walk in them. The good works are subsequent to our transformation. They don't bring it. But, I, I mean, you and I can go out and we can find religion after religion and denomination after denomination that seems to not know this passage even exists. They try to append something to God's gift. Some work which you can do, which I can do, which makes salvation a real thing for me. I don't get it until I do this work. That's not what the scripture says. It's totally, absolutely a free gift of the living God that you can't earn, I can't earn, I can't do a thing to get it. I could be totally quadriplegic and, and brain dead and give it if God wanted to give it to me. <laughs> and obviously there wouldn't have been anything I could do to earn, earn it. And I, I think that's such an important concept for us to realize. The manufacture of the tabernacle did not make the Israelis God's people. They were God's people who made the tabernacle. They didn't later build a temple so they could be God's people. They built the temple because they were God's people. You and I should go out and not kick the dog and be kind to that grouchy neighbor and, and say sweet things to one another because we're believers, not to become believers. But you know, even the Christian church doesn't get the hang of this sometimes. You read through the history of the church and there are people called the flagellants, for example, who go around whipping themselves, wham, wham, you know, bare backs, whipping themselves, walking through the streets to try to make themselves pleasing to God. I mean, they call themselves Christians. It's kind of like the Hindu trying to sleep on a bed of nails or walk through the hot coals. What for? <laughs> I'd rather be comfortable. What's the use of doing that if it doesn't, going to achieve, if it doesn't achieve anything? which scripture teaches it clearly does not. Now, 400 years after the time we're talking about here, during the reign of a king by the name of Solomon, God would order the construction of the temple. And I want you to build a specific place. And, and I want you to worship me 
at that place. And, and God was very, very explicit about that, about where that site would be and how that structure would be built. And he would not even let his favorite king, David, build it because David was a bloody king. He had killed many, many people in his life. And he had his son Solomon, who, as you know, grew up under very odd circumstances, to say the least, be the one to actually construct the, the temple. And, but, but God is very explicit about this even. Let's, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God, of your, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every pagan, I mean every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods. You shall obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. I mean, God made it very clear. You're not to just go in and kind of throw a little holy water on some place and convert it into a, a, a sacred site to me. You're to wipe the place out, burn it down, destroy it, level it because there is nothing there sacred to me. It has been profaned because it's been erected for the worship of demons. It's got to be obliterated. He didn't want anything left, the site or, or the sacred pillars or the uh, groves that were used to worship uh, Asherah or any of this stuff. He didn't want any of it left because he knew how easy it was for his people to be sucked into that kind of worship because it was sensual. It appealed to the flesh. And you and I, if we are living and breathing, know how big a problem that is because the flesh is constantly around us. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> Sometimes more of it than I'd like. And, and, and there's always an appeal after the things of the flesh. So God said, wipe them out and you will worship me in the places where I tell you but, verse 5, you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for a dwelling, and, you, and there you shall come. Now, see, the tabernacle was a moving place. But now, he's talking about the day when they be settled in the land. He said, at that time, there's going to be one place and one structure, and it's not going to be moving. It's going to be solid stone built in one place. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There, you, there also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution of your hand, and all your votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. 
And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. But be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. But in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, there you shall do as I command you. And later on, there would be a specific description as to exactly how the temple was to be built. What we find is that God is just not ecumenical. You know? God is not a pluralist. You know, we live in ecumenical, pluralistic America, where everything everybody does is okay. Uh, even if somebody's a mass murderer, well, it's probably because of society, so we have to treat this person with kid, kid gloves. I mean, this is the country in which we live. I mean, that's not how God uh, ordained it to be. God said, this is how you shall live, and there is no other way to serve me. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. So pluralism, you know, I suppose politically pluralism is, a necessity, is necessary in a country like ours, but God is not pluralistic. God is very singular. The tabernacle was a tent. And the Israelites were going to spend another 39 years out there in, in the wilderness, you know, bouncing from place to place. And so obviously a, a, a portable place of worship was very handy. Just tear the thing down and pack it up and haul it off and put it back up again. Now, for those of you who've moved very often, you might think that doesn't sound like much fun. <laughs> but you have to remember that every Levite had his specific job. So it really wasn't that difficult. Each one knew that this is the framework I take down, or this is the piece of furniture I help carry, or this is the piece of curtain that I fold up. I mean, they all knew their jobs, and so it was not a lot difficult to tear it down or to put it back up. What we're looking at is basically a wood frame structure with a bunch of cloths draped over it, and that's basically what it was. You know, that's what the tabernacle was. Now, from the information, as we read through the 26th chapter of uh, Exodus, uh, we can understand that the size of the tabernacle. And what is really amazing about this is how small the tabernacle was. You know, we have this, I don't know if you do, but some of you, many of you probably have taught Sunday school. And you've had the little Sunday school booklets. And little Sunday school booklets often have pictures, like a picture of David and Goliath. And Goliath looks like he's three stories tall, and David looks like he's about, uh, you know, fifth grade. <laughs> And, and see, so this little bitty guy has to throw the rock uphill, you know, to, to hit this giant. Well, that's Sunday school literature sometimes does that just to make a point, I guess, to the children, which exaggerates things from, from reality. You know, the difference between David and, and, and Goliath was uh, maybe three feet in terms of total height. Uh, David was a full-grown man. He wasn't a little kid. And Goliath was about nine, nine, six. I mean, you know, he'd have been done well in the NBA or <laughs> probably in the NFL, but... <laughs> I mean, he missed his, his day, didn't he? <laughs> and, and so when you see this drawing, and it looks like the tabernacle is this monstrous thing. It was, it was a very, very tiny little thing. Uh, scripture tells us it was um, 30 cubits long. Well, a cubit, approximately a foot and a half. So it's only 45 feet from one end of this structure to the other. And uh, it, it's 10 cubits wide, but that's only 15 feet. And it's, and it's only 10 cubits high, that's only 15 feet. You know. Uh, 15 feet, I mean, I don't know how wide this room is, but I mean, even from, from here to that wall is probably no more than 15 feet, right? From Jerry to the wall there, about maybe 15 feet. 
and, and 45 feet is not much more than, what, another half that way? I mean, it's a tiny little structure. It didn't have to be big. You didn't have six million Israelis meeting inside there. You just had the priests going in uh, on, on occasion. We're looking at something that was under 700 square feet. Now, if you and I were to move into, maybe you do, and no offense meant here, but if I were to move into, I better put it that way, into a 700 square foot apartment, I'd feel cramped. Because I live in a house three times that size, you know. So I got, I said, well, I got dough here, you know. <laughs> I got to get rid of three quarters of what I own, you know, to move into this thing. But that's how big the tabernacle was. It wasn't intended to be impressive for its size. God wasn't building some gigantic thing so they'll stand there and say, whoa. And when you go to the days of Jesus, and I'm going to have to end this. When you go to the days of Jesus, and, and remember the little conversation some of the disciples had with Jesus, they're walking out in the temple, and they said, Jesus, look at this great ta uh, temple here. Well, Jesus wasn't terribly impressed, of course. He said, you know, one stone's going to be standing on another, and that's not exactly the response they were looking for. But those guys had never really seen a temple. <laughs> they had not been to Babylon or Rome to see a real temple. They had only seen this thing that Herod had made, uh, you know, the leftover of uh, what uh, Zerubbabel had originally uh, started. So size was not important to God. And I, I can just imagine if one of the Egyptians had wandered out in the wilderness and found the Israelis and said, your God is in that little place? Don't you remember when you were in Egypt? The great structures that were raised to the gods of Egypt? You have a puny God. <laughs> yeah, well, that puny God wiped you guys out, you know. The size of the structure has absolutely nothing to do with God, the size of God here when it comes to this tabernacle or even later the temple. And uh, there's some really important truths about God that I want to get to and I can't get to it today because the clock is moving faster than I am here this morning. But there are those who have accused God of being arrogant because God says, I want all the praise and the glory. But you know, there is in this, even this example of the tabernacle, a direct denial of that. In fact, a statement of exactly the opposite. And there are so many other statements like that in Scripture. And we'll look at some of those in, in two weeks.